In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul instructs his church to purge out the old leaven. He says, for your new lump, for even Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Now, the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians is about a person who was guilty in a public way of fornication. And it was of the worst kind. And the church had kind of looked the other way. And he's instructing the church that they should withdraw from this individual. He says that's therefore like purging out the old leaven. He's going to use an Old Testament example here that the Jewish people, Israelites, certainly were very acquainted with. To purge out the old leaven for your new lump, for Christ, even Christ, is our Passover who was sacrificed for us. Now, he's talking about an event that happened about 1,500 years prior to this. 1,500 years before this, the nation of Israel had been in the land of Egypt for over 400 years. And God is going to deliver them out of there, as he had promised many years before. And God's going to use a man by the name of Moses to do it. It's going to end up with the death of the firstborn, and that's where the Passover came from. But I want to go back and look at that. I was reading some of this this past week in my Bible reading, going by the uh, Bible reading guide that I put out here. And it just some of this just kind of stuck with me. If you go back to the third chapter of the book of Exodus, you'll find that Moses is 80 years of age, and he's on the backside of a desert, a place called Mount Horb, which was a mountain range. And one of the peaks of this mountain range is Mount Sinai that the Israelites would be acquainted with later on. And he, for 40 years, he's been tending sheep. What a contrast from the first 40 years that he spent in the land of Egypt when then he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He lived in a palace in his first 40 years. He lived in a desert in the second 40. But in that second 40 years, I'm sure he had a lot of quiet time with God. I'm sure he had a lot of time in which he prayed and meditated. I don't have any question about that. I'm sure he remembered his people back in the land of Egypt. The reason he fled Egypt when he was 40 is because he had slew an Egyptian who was oppressing one of the Israelites. And it came to the knowledge of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh and his men sought to kill him, and he had to flee the land. He got to Midian. He met a family there. He received a wife there. And now for the next 40 years, his life is totally and completely changed. Then one day, he sees a bush on fire. And he says, I must turn around and see this great sight while this bush is not burning. Now this is the beginning of God's delivering Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now this event's one of the uh, probably the greatest event in Israel's history. 1,500 years they've been keeping what's called the Passover. When he brought an entire nation of people out of captivity, out of bondage, out of the land of Egypt. And God's going to choose a very insignificant man to do it. A man for 40 years has been doing nothing but watching sheep. Now, I think he was in training here. He spent a lot of time away from the lights of the cities, you might say. He spent a lot of time with God. He had time to meditate, had time to pray, had time to consider 
learned a lot of lessons about keeping sheep, and that would help him in terms of what the Lord had in store for him. When you think of Egypt, you, think, you should think about the world in which we live here. Egypt was a place of darkness. Egypt was a, a place of bondage and captivity. God's people had been in the land of Egypt for over 400 years. But God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13 that's going to be fulfilled on God's schedule. He told Abraham, he says, Thy seed, your offspring, thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. He said they'll be in bondage there. Be, uh, again, in a land that's not theirs. There'll be strangers there. And they'll be in bondage there. He says, but I will bring them out. And then I will judge that nation that held them in bondage. And he says, they shall not come out empty, but they shall come out uh, with things that they are going to receive from the Egyptians. Now, it's been a long time since God made that statement to Abraham, but all that's going to come to pass here. So God is going to cause a bush. He's going to take an insignificant bush. Now, this is a desert bush. It's not the kind of bush you'd want to plant around your house in landscaping it. This is an insignificant bush, a thorny bush, an unsightly bush. And God's going to take something like that and bring a great miracle out of it. It's a bush that's on fire. Now, the bush didn't start its own fire. The fire that's there, the bush that's on fire, that fire was generated by God. God empowered that fire uh, in the bush, and the bush is not changing shape. It's not changing form. The bush is not diminishing whatsoever. He'd never seen anything like that. I've never seen anything like that, but I know it happened. Here's a bush that's on fire, and yet it's not going away. And there's a voice that speaks to him out of the bush. There's one other time this bush is brought to our attention. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 33, when Moses, just before he leaves this scene here, is pronouncing a blessing upon the children of Israel, all the different sons of Israel. And he comes down and he thanks God for the precious things of the earth, for the sun and the moon and the rain and everything. And he says, for the good will of him that dwelt in the bush. The word dwelt here literally means the Shekinah glory. And so the Lord himself in his glory appears in this bush. Now I want to take a, a, a picture of this this morning, you might say, or take a look at what I think is a picture of. First of all, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has been under persecution ever since God formed them and created them. And yet they're still here. The bush has not been consumed. And then we find Moses himself, an insignificant, weak individual, at 80 years of age now. Uh, he's like that bush, I believe, that unsightly bush. And yet... The Lord's going to empower him to do something. He's going to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. Now, Moses doesn't have the ability within himself. He will object four different times to this mission. He doesn't have that ability. But God will empower him. That, that fire in that bush had to be a, a great fire and glowing and giving great light. So God is going to be with him and no man will be able to put that fire out. The Lord speaks to him, and here's what he says, I'm the God of your fathers, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I want you to notice now what he says. 
He says, I have seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their groanings. He says, I have looked upon them. I have seen, I have heard, and I know their sorrow. There's three things right here. He speaks to Moses about Israel that you can apply to your life today. God sees your affliction. God hears your prayers and your cries, your, your groanings and your moanings. He hears them, and he knows your sorrow. And he says, I will come down, and I will deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and I will bring them into a land that flows with milk and honey, to a land of six different nations. We see a complete picture here. He saw, he heard, he knew, he came down. He says, I will do this. If he says, I'll do it, it's just as good as done. I'll do these things. He says, not only I'll come down and deliver them out, out from under their burdens, but I'll deliver them from the Egyptians. Now listen, God could have come down and delivered them from their burdens and yet left them under the control of the Egyptians, but he didn't do that. He's going to give them a double deliverance. He's going to deliver them out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and then he's going to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians. He's going to deliver them out and bring them in to the land of Canaan. He says, Moses, I'm sending you to bring them out. Moses' response is this. He says, who am I? Well, let's think about it. Moses is 80 years old. He's no spring chicken. Moses is 80 years old, and the last time he was in Egypt, uh, he caused quite a controversy, and he had to flee for his life. I'm sure he's thinking, I don't want to see anybody back down there in Egypt, and you're asking me to do this, telling me to do this. Who am I? And the Lord said, certainly, I'll be with you. Now, that's all Moses needed to know right there. Certainly, I'll be with you. I am the Lord. Now, that statement won't mean anything to you unless you have studied who the Lord is. Till you study what the Bible says about God, who God is, who the Lord is. And you understand that he's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He's holy. He's righteous. He's truth personified. He cannot change. His counsel shall stand. He'll do all his good pleasure. You need to understand who the Lord is. Then when the Lord speaks to you and says, I am the Lord, that'll calm you down. I am the Lord. Certainly, I'll be with you. And then he's going to declare the results. He says, whenever you bring the children of Israel out, he says, you'll bring them to this mountain to worship and serve me right here. He guaranteed the results. He didn't say, if you get them out, bring them here. He says, when you bring them out. Now, Moses comes up with objection number two. But before we say something about that, let me say this about that. When you look in the book of Joshua, you're going to find where Joshua is about to do battle against Jericho. And before the battle ever takes place, God gives the results. He says unto Joshua, he says, he says, see, I have given thee the king and the mighty men of valor and all the people. It sounds like the battle's already been fought, doesn't it? But it hadn't been. Joshua's still going to have to go and fight the battle, but the results is already given to him by God. Now, he can do that because in Isaiah chapter 46, he says, I am the Lord, there's none like me, declaring, I-N-G, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will do all my good pleasure. 
See, God can declare things in the future as if they're already in the past because he's going to bring it to pass. And so he declares to Moses the results. Very simple. Certainly I'll be with you. And when you bring these people out of there, you'll bring them to this mountain right here and worship me at this mountain. Moses objects a second time. He says, Lord, who shall I say has sent me? What is his name? He says, you tell them that I am, capital I, capital A-M, I am that I am has sent you. Now, what he's saying there is this. The eternal, self-existing God, the omnipotent God of heaven and earth, who rules the heavens and rules the earth, is the one who has sent you. That's what the expression I am means. Now, over in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, you'll find out what all those I am's are. You find the Lord saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the resurrection, etc. There's others in the Gospel of John. You'll find where the Lord says before Abraham was, I am. Again, it simply means he's the self-existent, eternal, omnipotent, creator God of the heaven and the earth. And he was the God of the Israelites. He says, that's what you are to tell them. He then tells Moses, he says, I've seen the affliction of my people, and I'm going to come down and deliver them. He's showing Moses how much he cares. 1 Peter 5, 7, the apostle Peter says, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, I, I like a, a, a verse over here in Psalms 56, 8 that corresponds to that, I think. David is praying to the Lord. He says, Lord, thou tellest, that means thou countest my wanderings. That means you're, you're counting my steps as I travel along here. Thou tellest my wanderings. Thou hast put all my tears into thy bottle. <laughs> now, God's got a bottle. He says, and they are written in thy book. What's that verse saying? The verse is saying he cares for you. There's nothing about you the Lord doesn't know. There's nothing about you uh, that the Lord is not concerned about. That's why the Lord himself said in the New Testament, the very hair of your head is numbered. A sparrow cannot fall to the ground without the knowledge of God. All the tears you've ever shed and ever will are put into a bottle that God has. And they're written in a book, a book of remembrance. Thou tellest my wanderings. God had not forgotten about his people down in the land of Egypt. So that's objection number two. Objection number three, Moses comes, this is in Exodus chapter four. He says, they will not believe me. Now, when Moses was a shepherd, you know, doing the work of the shepherd, he had a rod and a staff. And when he left there to go back to Egypt, God told him to bring the rod with him. The rod symbolized power and authority. It was used for the protection of the sheep. He took the rod with him. He says, Moses, take the rod and cast it down. He did. It became a serpent. He says, now pick it up by the tail. He picked it up by the tail and turned back into a rod. He says, Moses, take your hand and put it into your bosom. And he did. He says, draw it out. When he did, it was leprous, white as snow. He says, put it back in again. He did. Pull it out. He did. It returned back just like it was in the very beginning. He said, now, if they won't believe these two signs, he says, you just pour some water out and it'll be turned into blood. That's three signs you can give the people. They will believe you, Moses. Then Moses says, well, I'm not eloquent. <laughs> I'm not a good speaker. 
You know, I, somehow or another, of course, I know this is not true. I know I'd be just like Moses. But somehow or another, if I just handled a snake, if I just, uh, uh, my hand turned to, uh, into leprosy and was restored again, and my rod turned into a snake, and I picked up the snake, turned back into a rod, somehow or another, I think God would have me convinced at this point. But maybe not. Maybe not. He said, but I'm not eloquent. He said, you got a brother, don't you? His name is Aaron. He's three years older than you. He said, I'll let him go with you. He'll be your mouthpiece. He'll speak to you. So that was his fourth objection. And the Lord rebutted them all. And, but the Lord said he got angry. The fourth time he said, I'm not eloquent. So the Lord was not pleased with all this. I think the Lord reached a point where he said, I'm kind of getting fed up, Moses. And he says, you know, I've already told you what you're going to do. I've already told you I'll go with you. I've already told you what the results are. I've already shown you these miraculous signs. Now it's time to go down into the land of Egypt. And he says, when you get there, you're to tell the elders, first of all, of everything that I've told you, and then the people will hear it, and they did exactly that. And when they did, all the people fell down and worshipped. So now we come into chapter 5. And we find the first meeting between Moses and Pharaoh. It didn't go well. We find where Moses tells Pharaoh to let my people go. Now, the expression, let my people go, we found seven times as you study these portions of Scripture. Let my people go. Not let the people go, let my people go. He also had told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn go because Israel is my son, he's my firstborn. He says, the whole entire nation of Israel is my son and my firstborn, and you let him go. He said, if not, I will destroy your firstborn. Now, he says that ahead of time. That's going to happen, plague number 10. It's going to take 10 plagues, but it's going to happen at the end. He says, Israel's my firstborn. Let my firstborn go. If you don't let my firstborn go, I will destroy and slay your firstborn. So they tell Pharaoh, let us go, uh, let us go uh, you know, out into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, this was to be a three-day journey, which means three days out, three days back, that's six. One day of sacrifice, that's seven. So they'd be away from their work for seven days, one week. Pharaoh asked two questions, or asked, made one statement, one question. He says, who is the Lord? I know not the Lord. That's his two statements. He's going to find out who the Lord is before it's all over with. But he says, who is the Lord? I know not the Lord. And he refused to let him go. And then he charged Moses and Aaron were causing the people to be idle. Now the people, their job at that particular time was to make bricks. The Egyptians did a lot of building. To make bricks. And to make bricks they had to have straw. The Egyptians would furnish the straw to begin with. And then they'd have to make so many bricks per day. He says from now on you're going to have to get your own straw. We're not going to furnish the straw for you. You've been idle. Apparently you've got time on your hands in other words. And so you're going to have to get your own straw. Well, they objected. They said, well, this is unreasonable. We cannot make the same number of bricks if we've got to go out and get our straw. But Pharaoh would not listen to reason. And so a great and heavy burden was placed upon them which they could not hold up underneath. So the officers of the Israelites came and spoke to Pharaoh to appeal all of this, but Pharaoh wouldn't listen. 
And they had to leave and go back and tell the people, you've got to get the straw, you've got to make the same number of bricks. See, the straw, uh, the, when the Egyptians did their building, the, the uh, archaeologists found out that they, they mixed the straw in with the, uh, with the bricks. But also the straw was used to burn, you know, in the ovens and one thing or another. And sometimes the straw was used to cover the bricks in the hot sunlight. So straw was very important in making all these bricks. But they couldn't make the same number of bricks if they had to go out and gather all the straw. Pharaoh was a very cruel taskmaster. And he proved it time and time and time again. And so we find the officers, as they leave, they meet Moses and Aaron. And they're not happy with Moses and Aaron. This first time that Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh didn't end well from that point of view. And so they ridicule and criticize Moses and Aaron and charge them with causing them to have their burdens to be overwhelming. Now, what should have these officers done? Well, I think the officers probably should have went to Moses and Aaron and said, let's get together, discuss this, let's have a prayer meeting, let's go to the Lord and ask the Lord to help us here. But no, they didn't do that. So this is the meeting as Moses. Can you imagine? Here comes Moses, here comes Aaron, and uh, they're, they're meeting the officers coming back, and all of a sudden the officers just really crawl their case. Now, see, God promised Moses he'd bring the people out of there, but he didn't promise Moses he'd have an easy time of it. Leaders of God's people need to understand that, need to understand the difficulties that they're going to have to face. Uh, and they just need to strive to be good stewards and, and faithful to the Word of God and faithful to God and leave the results in the hands of God. But there's always going to be opposition, always. So Moses met with the opposition. Then the Lord, beginning in chapter 6, tells Moses, he says, I am the Lord. Now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. Remember this expression, I am the Lord. And he's going to speak here, and I want you to notice, this is what really got my attention, Exodus chapter 6. He said, do you not know, excuse me, uh, in Exodus chapter 6, the Lord said unto Moses, now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall they drive them out of his land. Not his hand, God's hand. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And we come on down to verse 6. He says, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And here is going to be seven wills of God. The seven wills of God. For I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to be for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a heritage. I am the Lord. Now, can you get anything more positive than that? Any more powerful than that? Here's seven wills of God. When you start talking about the will of God and the will of man... It's amazing to me how people get these reversed. You know, people will try to tell you that you have a free will. In the natural realm, you do. You can wear what color shirt you want to wear. You can wear what color socks you want to wear. You can eat what you want to eat for breakfast. You're making decisions every day, all day long, right? Do you ever get tired of making decisions? <laughs> I do. I get so tired of making them. You know, when I think I made my last one, here comes another a whole bunch I've got to make some decisions about. 
And so, yeah, I have the freedom to do that. But in my natural state, I have no free will in a spiritual sense because I'm dead in trespasses and in sin. So now listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. Verse 13, for the children having not yet been born, having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. For it is written, the elders shall serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but it's of God that showeth mercy. In John 1, 11, 12 and 13, it says, The Lord Jesus Christ was in the world. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came to his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, gave he power to become the sons of God, even those that believe on his name, who were born not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, not of blood, but of God. I don't know how it would be any plainer. When I look in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's his will. I just showed you what is not according to our will. Here we have seven wills of God. And when, God, when the Bible speaks about God's will, you can mark it down. You can count it. When he speaks about God's will, whatever he's talking about, it's going to come to pass. He gives seven wills here unto Moses. See, Moses came to the Lord. Listen, look at the last part of chapter 5. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Why is it that thou hast not sent, why is it thou hast sent me? Moses was a little confused about this. Things didn't get off to the right start, not to the kind of start Moses thought he was going to get off to. God never told him it would. But what did God tell him? He said, certainly I'll be with you, and ye shall bring Israel out of here, and here's the mountain, you're going to come and worship me. He just didn't give him all the details. He says, now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. And the Lord has already said unto Moses that it's going to take multiple wonders. Now we usually call them the ten plagues, wonders, miracles, and you're going to find, if you study this carefully, you're going to find where God did, made war on Pharaoh and the false gods of that day. Egypt was given to gross immorality and gross idolatry. They worship anything and everything you could possibly think about. So the first thing that Moses does is what God had already showed him. Him and Aaron go in there and they cast that rod down and it becomes a serpent. Now there are some magicians in Egypt and they cast their rods down and they become serpents. The second miracle is turning water, the water of the Nile River, which was sacred to the Egyptians, into blood. You know the, the magicians were able to do something very similar? And the third thing was frogs. God brought frogs from everywhere. <laughs> frogs out of the river. And they came into the houses. They came, into the, they came everywhere. Frogs everywhere. Now most ladies that I know of are not fond of frogs. And if, if, if they come upon a frog, a frog just jumps on top of them, there's going to be some screaming, some shrieking, and you name it, it's going to come out, right? Well, you wouldn't have fared very well right here. There's frogs everywhere. Frogs on everybody. The magicians brought forth some frogs. Now, these magicians were duplicators. But I'm going to tell you what the magicians couldn't do. Magicians could not stop God from doing his wonders. And the magicians couldn't reverse what God had done concerning his wonders. All the magicians did was make it worse. 
They just produce more frogs. <laughs> Who wants more frogs? <laughs> That's all they were able to do. They couldn't prevent it, and they couldn't reverse it. And this is the last thing that they did. They were not able to do any more. I personally believe God just allowed them to do it to show supreme power. Because when you notice when Moses cast down his rod, became a serpent, and they'd done the same thing, the Bible says, Aaron's rod consumed and devoured the rods, uh, uh, serpents rather, uh, of the magicians. That showed the supreme power of God's serpents over the, the magician's serpents here. Now, if you take a look at these ten, these ten uh, plagues here, these ten wonders, the first nine, you can break into three groups. And you'll notice the third, sixth, and ninth plagues come unannounced. The first two, one and two, four and five, seven and eight, they all come announced ahead of time. Moses tells them what's going to happen. But three, six, and nine do not. You're going to find the fourth plague has to do with the flies. Now you got all kind of flies. Excuse me, lice. Lice. And you're going to find where Aaron is going to smite the dust of the earth and it's going to turn into lice. And this was not comfortable either. Each, each uh, wonder, a miracle that they did was a little more severe than one before that. And so you had the lice and you had the, you had the moraine and you had... You had the boils that came in the next three. Things are getting a little more serious now. Each time they would come before Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and Pharaoh wouldn't do it. He wouldn't let them go. Finally, people appealed to Pharaoh and, and asked him to let them go. Then Pharaoh began to try to compromise with them and tell them, he said, well, you can go, but you can't take your little ones. Well, you can understand the logic of that, can't you? Anybody he felt like if they went out and sacrificed, they'd have to come back because that little ones is right back here. But Moses said, no, he says, when we leave here, it's going to be us, our little ones, our cattle, the whole nine yards are going to leave here. And we're going to go out three days and sacrifice. And that's what it's going to be. Moses never compromised. And then we come to the flies and we come to the moraine and the boils and the hail. But beginning with the fourth plague, you're going to find where God severs Goshen, the land of Goshen, away from the rest of the Egyptians. Remember when Joseph's father and them came down there? They settled in the land of Goshen. Goshen's in the right corner up here, the northeast corner of the land of Egypt. And we see here a picture, I think, of Israel being in Egypt, but separate from Egypt. Just like we're in the world, we're not to be of the world. And so they live together, separated from the Egyptians... And here we find, start with plague number four, where God is going to separate Goshen. Every plague from here on out will not affect the Israelites. It will the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. We come to the last three. And we find where God sends the hail. We mentioned this last Sunday. God sends the hail and it destroys all the crops. That hail never entered into the land of Goshen. It only affected the Egyptians. It did not have any kind of impact upon the Israelites in the land of Goshen over there. Now, I, I believe the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is in this world. And we're impacted by what goes on in this world. But I believe as long as we separate ourselves from the world 
keep ourselves separate from this world and draw nigh to God, he draws nigh to us, and we cling together, we hang, hang together, we cleave together, if you please, then I believe we have a special protection of God. I believe God will put his arms around us and, and, and help us, and he will protect us from the, all the tr things that goes on in this world. I'm not talking about taking all the evil away and all the sorrow away. I'm not talking about that. But I believe there's a special protection God gives his children who walk nigh to him and close to him. You're just not impacted. And when you do, you can handle it different than anybody else can. You can take it better than anybody else can. I saw one brother this morning, you know, spoke to him and he said, I asked him how he was doing. He said, well, better than I deserve. I said, well, uh, every one of us can say that. Every single one of us can say that. We are receiving of the Lord's hand far better than we deserve. On a scale of 1 to 10, how faithful are we? On a scale of 1 to 10, how dedicated are we? On a scale of 1 to 10, how much are we truly manifesting our love for the Lord and Jesus Christ? Is not God better to us than we deserve? <laughs> if you're lining up in the line of what you deserve, I'm going I'm to let you have my place. Okay? <laughs> I'm not getting in that line. I'm not getting in the line of, of receiving what I deserve. I want to get in the line over here uh, of, you know, of getting what I don't deserve. That came out right. Anyway. <laughs> the hell came down, pinpointing. And then God's going to send the ninth plague. The ninth plague is three days of darkness. Three days and three nights of total darkness in which the people were so dark they couldn't see one another. They didn't even get out of their seats in their houses. They just stayed in one place for three days. And the darkness was so dark you could feel the darkness. It's called a thick darkness. When I think about the three days of darkness, I can't help but think about three hours of darkness. Three hours of darkness our Savior would experience on Calvary from 12 to 3, from noontime to 3 in the afternoon. And a transaction took place during that three hours of darkness that only God the Father and God the Son could see. It took place between the two of them, but you were embraced in it. But God did not allow the world to view what took place on that cross those three hours of darkness when the sun was to be shining its brightness and yet there was three hours of darkness on that cross. Here's three days of darkness but guess what? Over here in Goshen, there's light. Daytime and light at the same time. Have you ever been in your yard at nighttime and it's dark and you look over at your neighbor over there and the sun was shining? Or maybe the sun was shining in your yard and you look over at your neighbor's yard and it's total darkness. Has that ever happened to you? When the sun is shining over here, it's dark somewhere around the other side of the globe and vice versa, right? But God miraculously caused darkness to come to all the Egyptians and gave light to the Israelites. They had light in their camps. They had such great light they couldn't put it out. The darkness had, uh, the Egyptians had such great darkness that they couldn't reverse it. For three days, three solid days of this darkness. Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. Whoso walketh after me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Our prayer text this morning was, For you are sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk ye therefore as children, what? Children of light. The Lord said, let your light so shine before me and they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. God is light personified. He's the, he's the generator. We're the reflectors, right? 
And, and our light ought to be shining in such a manner and way that honors and glorifies his wonderful and precious name. But Pharaoh still wouldn't let them go. God says, I'm going to bring the tenth plague. It's going to be death. It's going to be death of the firstborn. Now, he tells the Israelites to take a lamb. This is, this is very important. He says, you take a lamb out of the flock, a male lamb without spot, without blemish. You take it out on the tenth day of the month. Now, the Jewish people had two calendars. They had a civil calendar and a religious calendar. Their civil calendar began in about our, uh, September, October, but the religious calendar began in the month Nisan, which is our March slash April. On the tenth day of the month, you define that lamb, a male lamb, without spot, without blemish. You to separate him out, and you are to observe him for a period of time from the tenth day to the fourteenth day, because he must meet divine specifications. John the Baptist came to this world, and in John 1, 29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I'm telling you, the Lamb of God met all the divine specifications. They could find no blemish in him. They could find no fault in him. Even Pilate said that twice. He said, I find no fault in this man. They tried to trick him. They tried to entrap him, to ensnare him. They all failed because there was nothing in this man other than perfection. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched the feelings of our infirmities, but in all points as tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, it says, He was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made in the rights of God in Him. The apostle Peter tells us, We're redeemed not with corruptible things of silver and gold, but by the precious blood of the Lamb of God, as a lamb without spot, without blemish, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Our Savior never sinned. He was the perfect lamb. He made every specification, divine specification. When the Father looked down upon him, he said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. He would not have said that if there had been any defect, any blemish at all whatsoever in the Son. He would not have said that. He said because there was no defect. There was no blemish in the Son. The Lamb of God meets all, met all divine specifications. He says, Then you to take a lamb. And then it becomes the lamb. That lamb is to be slain. And that a lamb, the lamb becomes your lamb. It becomes personal. He says you are taken to roast the entire lamb. The entirety. And it's important if you see the wholeness of this. When I study the New Testament, study the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, I love to study his person. I love to study his work. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He says... Concerning Christ, I'm determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's His person and His work. I want the whole picture, the whole lamb right here. And they were all to eat it, and it was eaten as a family. There was to be a lamb per household. If a household be too little, there's a joint to another household. A lamb per household, and the entire household was to partake of this lamb. Parents, children, everybody in the family is to be a partaker of this lamb. It's important for you to understand that through reading and studying the Word of God and praying and being consistent and faithful in your attendance in the house of God to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed, that's where you get your spiritual nourishment and strength to face the challenges of another day. Because He is the bread of life. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the bread of life. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of, the, the word of God that God has spoken. Jesus Christ is what we fe- feast on. Jesus Christ is what we feed on, right? And that's where we get our necessary nourishment and strength again to face the challenges that come at us on a daily basis. He says when you eat it, you have your loins girded, sandals on your feet, and staff in your hand, and you eat it with haste. Because when I come in at the midnight hour, you're going to go out. Now all this is pointing to the Savior, to the Lord Jesus Christ, our opening text. When he says, for Christ, even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So now they have the loins girded, sandals on their feet, the staff in their hand. The lamb has been separated out. It's met all the divine specifications. It has been roasted, the entirety of it. They must eat the fullness of it. And then at midnight, at midnight, God comes through. And he's going to pass over the houses where the blood has been put on the side post and lintel. He says, you take the hyssop and you dip it in the blood of the lamb and you put it on the side post and the lintel. And notice a lamb per family. That lamb was slain. The hyssop was taken into the blood of that lamb, put on the side post and the lintel. And when God saw the lamb or the blood, excuse me, he passed over. He passed over. You know why God's going to pass over you? Why God's going to pass over me? At the end of time, at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because he's going to see some blood. It won't be your blood. It ain't going to be my blood. It's going to be the blood of the Savior. It's going to be the blood of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I didn't have any other reason at all in the world to come to the house of God, it'd be because of what I just said. Down south of uh, Birmingham, Alabama, between Birmingham and Montgomery, if you ever travel that highway... There's this, uh, on the side of the road there, there's this big pond and lake kind of. Anyway, they have some religious signs posted out there. And I noticed the one the other day coming back says, Go to church or the devil will get you. <laughs> I said, I don't go to the church because I think the devil's going to get me. I know he's after me to start with. I go to church because I love Jesus Christ. I go to church because I love my great God and I love my adorable Savior. I go to the house of God to meet with God in His house and His people to learn more and more about the matchless Savior we have in Jesus Christ and His precious life and His precious blood that was shed. That motivates me to get out on a Sunday morning and come to the house of God. I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to meet with Jesus. Somebody says, you got an appointment today? I sure do. What time? 10.30. Where are you going? I'm going to meet Jesus. (laughs) I told somebody the other day, he said, I have to call you back. Got to meet my financial advisor. (laughs) Well, that's fine and good, I suppose. But uh, I I like to come to my my personal advisor in everything in life, the Lord Jesus Christ. I meet with him every Lord's Day right here at 10.30 at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church. God went through and he passed over. And where he saw the blood, the firstborn was spared. Where he saw not the blood, the firstborn was slain. Not one firstborn of the Egyptians from Pharaoh down to the lowest servant was spared. They all were slain. But God's firstborn, the nation of Israel, every firstborn of every family was spared. Because God saw the blood and he passed over. And God said, now you keep this perpetually 
From this day forward, and for 1,500 years when Christ came to this world, they were still keeping the Passover. It was an ordinance. But he says it's also a memorial. Now, Jesus Christ came, he fulfilled that Passover supper, and he established what we call the Lord's Supper. Has unleavened bread and wine on that table. Took the place of that lamb in the Old Testament day. When you come to the Lord's Supper and you see the unleavened bread and the wine over here, you are viewing the Lamb of God. And it's a memorial. You know what would happen to Israel if they didn't have this memorial? Oh, God would have took them to the land of Canaan, all right. And they'd have settled in the land of Canaan. And then as time went on, they just kind of forgot that God brought them out of the land of Egypt. But every time they had the Passover, they were reminded about it. Every time they had the Passover, they took their sons and their daughters aside. And they said, this is what this means. There was a time we were in Egyptian bondage and captivity. But our great God came and took us out without the loss of one. Brought us out of there. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn and our great God passed through and he passed over and he saw the blood. And they were reminded every year at Passover what it was all about. Twice a year, in general, twice a year, we have a communion here. And we have this table right here with a very simple message on it. Jesus died for sinners. A very simple message right here. You're saved by amazing grace. A real simple message right here. The Lamb of God took your place. The Lamb of God took my place. The Lamb of God lived the life I couldn't live, crossed the T's I couldn't cross, died the eyes I couldn't dot. The Lamb of God lived that perfect, holy, righteous life, and now God sees me through Him. And that's what I see on this table, and it takes about every six months to remind me about that. in its fullness, in its depth. I trust I think about it every day. I want to think about it every day. I got a lot more I would like to say. Right now, um, we'll hold off to the evening service, and Lord willing, we'll pick back up where we're at this morning.